Do you want to maximize your success with NCUA? Join Mark Trichel as he shares with you the insider's view on passing your exam with Flying Colors. The With Flying Colors podcast is sponsored by Credit Union Exam Solutions by Mark Trichel. If you would like to work directly with the Credit Union Exam Solutions team and receive support to optimize your results with NCUA so you save time and money, visit us at marktrichel.com to find out more. Hey, this is Mark Trichel with another episode of With Flying Colors. I'm glad that you're joining us here today. And I'm excited today because I have one of the co-owners of Compliance Tech, Mike Taliaferro. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Mark, and it's a pleasure to be with you today on With Flying Colors. I'm excited to have you on the show. I've had some conversations with some members of your staff who demonstrated the software that you have, and you and I had a conversation after that relative to the things that Compliance Tech does for credit unions and other financial institutions. And Mike, if you could give us a little bit of background on how you got into forming this company and kind of the journey that you've had that got you to this point, that would be great. That'll be fine. It's an interesting journey that when I graduated law school, I never would have thought that I would end up doing what I'm doing because I went to law school in the days when the personal computers really had not come about. But I started my professional career in Washington, D.C., like many folks who are in compliance and regulations, working as an attorney for the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. And I was in the finance division of the Office of the General Counsel. And the finance division primarily represented Ginnie Mae and also did Fannie Mae oversight. And so... That was my responsibility. I also got involved in bond financing or real estate tax syndications back in the heyday. And I moved up the ladder to section chief for Jenny May after six years or so. After HUD, I left to go to the Mortgage Bankers Association. And my first job there was as the director for financial affiliates. And basically, that was to represent the mortgage banking industry's interests for those companies that were depositories. And so it included interacting with all of the bank regulatory agencies, including NCUA, on issues important to the mortgage banking industry. And so I moved up the ladder there. I was a vice president when I left, and I had also taken over secondary market activities that included interactions with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And while I was at the MBA, I met a gentleman in Chicago named Maurice Jordan Earl, who is my partner in this business. And I was being introduced as the new director. This is one of those in-between promotions of secondary market activities. And Maurice is in the room. There's about a thousand people in the room, but there were not very many minority people in the room. And Maurice came up to me afterwards and it just, just struck up a conversation. Maurice is African-American, and we both happen to be from the Chicago area. He's from Chicago. I'm from the suburbs of Chicago. And we just started talking. He worked for Citibank then. And then so Citibank had a downturn a few years later, and he came to me to try to, he wanted to start this business to do due diligence. And because this is during the thrift, thrift crisis, and he thought there was a business opportunity there. 
And so to make a long story short, because it is a long story, <laughs> we started this company to do due diligence. And so we organized assets for securitization in the secondary market, did underwriting reviews and of all types of loans, business loans, mortgage loans. There were more mortgage loans than anything else, but any type of asset we helped to securitize by doing the re-underwriting. Okay. Now, that business started to die out as things started to come to an end with the thrift crisis. And when that happened, we had to think of a second act. And it turns out that one of our employees, oh, at that time we had a California office, and one of our employees in California was just chit-chatting with one of her mortgage banking friends. And he said, hey, I have this Humda data over here. And actually he had it in paper, <laughs> paper format. And he says, I don't know what to do with this. We filed it, but we don't know what to do with it. And with our due diligence underwriting background, we took that information and say, okay, let's try to make sense of this data. And so we married the Humda data with his loan origination system data and voila, a new thing basically occurred that we call fair lending analysis. Actually, we call this the Humda Monitoring and Intervention Report. That's what we get called it. They're a typical government sounding name. But that sort of began things. Then we also started to do fair lending file reviews for lenders. And then we saw that that was a very inefficient process. And we started to have the idea, well, you know, why don't we use technology to make this process better? And then that gave rise to our first desktop fair lending analysis tool, which was called Seamus, which now is fair lending magic. And we also had another tool desktop we called Humdaware. Sounds too much like something else, <laughs> but now that has become lending patterns. And then we've added to that suite products with uh, Humda and a CRA reporting tool. And all along the way, we have done consulting. And so we consult in all areas for all types of lenders, credit unions, non-bank mortgage companies, non-bank other types of lenders. Might be auto, might also be small business. So we covered the gamut. That's quite a journey. It, we are the journey that we take. One of my favorite books is called Blink, and it talks about how you can make a decision at a blink of an eye. But then it goes into explain it's not really a blink of an eye. It is the journey that you took and all the decisions that you made and all the things that you've yeah. seen that leads that computer in your head to go, boom, I can make that really quick. It builds a strong foundation, all the different things that you've been involved with there. And I want to ask a follow-up. I've got several questions I want to ask, but mm -hmm. when you're explaining that you had that Humda data, the internet connection was a little bit wonky, I think is the technical term, but the transition from that person saying that they had the Humda data and going over to using something with that data on the front end. Could you describe that again, the discussions that you had relative to that? And then also as a link onto that, when was it that you kind of first went to the personal computer step? How many years ago was that? That was back in 1995. Okay. So that was the time period there. So what I was saying was we took that Humda data and he gave it to us with no direction and said, hey, can you guys tell me what this means to me? And so with our experience in the industry and working with all types of lenders, we said, okay, well, 
in order to tell this story, let's make it more complete. So let's append to the Humda data loan origination system data. And that marriage allowed us to tell a story, a deeper story, story by channel, a story by loan officer, a story by underwriter, okay, by product, specific product. In those days, Humda data didn't tell you very much. Now, since 2018, we have gotten to the point now where we have a data set that is almost as good as what we did when we put those two data sets together, Humda and LOS, Loan Origination System. Got it. Data. So, Mike, if someone was listening, we have a listener who's new to their credit union and they're looking at understanding what good goals would be for a fair lending compliance program, and they were chatting with you, what would you say to them? Well, I would say that a good goal, a great goal, is number one, to be able to detect discrimination if it is occurring. And detection involves research. It involves investigating on your own. It involves establishing or using key performance indicators that indicate inefficiencies. It involves tracking. It involves looking at inconsistencies, exceptions. So that first goal would be detection. The second goal would be developing controls. And these controls would be to prevent discrimination. And so when I think of controls, I think of guardrails. So you can impose parameters on discretion where you know there is discretion. <laughs> and that's part of that control process. You could also impose restrictions on exceptions. You can control the magnitude of the exception as well. Those are just a few on controls. The other thing that would be a good goal would be also being able to implement corrective action if you did find something. And so I used to always tell people, I still do, that part of the job of your fair lending committee is to decide what you're going to do if you find something. And it's better to decide it, decide what kind of correct action you will take in general before you find a problem. The reason why is it's so hard to make that decision on the fly. It's better to make it when it's not an issue. You know, if we find X, Y, Z, we're going to do A, B, C. So if a scenario like A, B, and C shows up, we're going to give our loan officers or our loan supervisors more discretion above and beyond the policy or vice versa? Am I on the right track in trying to think of an example there? If that's not a good example, or if you have a better one. Yeah, that could be an example, but if it wouldn't be more discretion, it's always will be less. <laughs> or it's going to be, we're going to monitor the, the discretion and we're going to track it. And we're going to give those people who are using it feedback. Okay, so that would be more of the type. But usually when we talk about corrective action, we're talking about making things well and good with the people that may have been harmed. Oh, okay. Okay, got That's it. That's what we're really talking about usually. And so if they have been overcharged, there might be an opportunity to refinance at a lower rate, or there might be some other kind of rebate or benny. 
Now, let me just say that that should be part of the plan, but that happens rarely. So I don't want to give the impression that that's something. This is a good example. It's not frequent, but it's a good example. Yes. So, and then I'd like to give you one more thing on goals is to have a goal to improve the process on an ongoing basis. So all of the things with it, detection, controls, corrective action, looking at the recommendations, and then recycling that in the next time around, improving the process where you can. Great. And that can be through building into your policy and process that annually, you're going to look at the policies and procedures, take a look at what it is you learned, and then mm-hmm. build that in moving forward. Example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So again, the same person that we're talking about in a credit union, if they're looking at a fair lending compliance program, could you give me some context as far as what sort of staffing levels, what stores, and maybe that varies by size and volume, what sort of organization, and in the perfect world, what their scope of review would be? Yeah. Wow. Now that's a loaded question, (laughs) but I'll give it a shot. So it's going to vary greatly by the size of the institution. So I would start with asset size. And I would also add the issue of the types of loans that the credit union makes. And so credit union makes mortgage loans, consumer loans, auto loans, small business loans, home improvement loans. The more different types they have, the greater the complexity. Okay. The other thing at play is where they lend. And so the more different places the credit union lends, that adds complexity. And it's going to add complexity when we get to, if we talk about redlining, that issue could surface there. But that also means you've distributed your resources as well, you know, branches and maybe third-party broker activities. So it gets channeled. There's more things to look at. So we've talked about loans, the number of loan types. We talked about the number of how you're spread out geographically. Then the other thing is the volume. And so the volume will drive whether or not you need to employ statistical analysis. If you are really small, low asset size, you do about a thousand loans, less than a thousand loans, mortgage loans, less than a thousand credit union loans, you're probably not going to need to do statistical analysis in a rigorous kind of way. So now I said all of that to get back to your question about staffing. So if you're less than the thousand, I would say, you probably can get by with one person and that person might not necessarily be doing fair lending full time depending on how many different things you have, you know? So you can get by with one person. You're very small. Now, I'm going to go to the other extreme. So if the other extreme is a credit union that's, say, over $10 billion, okay, first of all, you're probably going to be doing all of the lending that I'm talking about. You're going to be doing it all over the country. Uh, you're going to have a lot of branch offices. You're going to have a lot of people making decisions. You may have decentralized underwriting to some degree, and that's an important factor as well, you're going to need a lot more people. And you're going to be more or less like the banks. You're going to be more or less like, uh, I don't want to name any names, but the big banks. And you may have 
30 people in your department. You may have that many. And so it can run the extreme. And of course, you can kind of maybe figure out from the lowest to the highest, you know, where that credit union might fit in in terms of personnel. Mid-size, what is more typical that we see is a compliance officer, and it's always good to have one, <laughs> a fair lending officer, and a fair lending analyst. You can go a long way with just those three people. And so that could take you up to being a $3 billion organization. You can, okay. you can get a lot done with that. So I hope that's helpful. No, that's very helpful. And then, of course, the bigger you are, the more markets you're in, the more people you have needing the decisions, the yes. more loans you make, the more likely you need to do some statistically valid sampling. But also, yeah. and I guess because there's so many variables there, you could have an area where a branch has misinterpreted policy and that's leading to decisions different than what the board's expectation is. Or you could have people who are putting their thumb on the scale or whatever. So because of that, that's why you want to have a bigger department and want to do more testing and more sampling. Am I on track there? Yeah, you're definitely on track. And add to that, another scenario is with acquisitions. You may have acquired another institution and then that's merging systems and culture. And that can be difficult as well for fair lending. Sure. I've seen that and heard stories about organizations, credit unions that have merged and getting those two cultures. It takes a lot of effort from the top to have the old group start looking through the lens and the policies and procedures of the new groups. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I'll add as an aside too, one of the things that you can do when you're faced with that, you can actually merge the Humda data and our lending patterns tools allows you to do that in seconds. <laughs> And then analyze, see what you look like together historically. And you can see whether or not that it supports fair lending or whether you got a tougher road to hoe. Right. So you mentioned the word redlining. And if we get to that, so let's speak a little bit to the concept of redlining, either what it is you've seen out there, what it is uh, credit unions can do to make sure it's not happening or any relevant thoughts when I say the word redline or redlining, what pops into your head relative to what people can do in that regard and how a system like what you offer can assist in that regard? Okay, I can answer that question. But let me just say, this is one area where for credit unions, while it's extremely important, I wouldn't put that necessarily at the top of the list of the things to do for okay. the credit union. So I'd like to answer that question, but I would like to, because I don't want to leave the audience with an idea that it's more important than some other basic things that I would like to. You got answer. it. So answer that question and then let's pivot okay. into what the basic things are that are more important. Okay, sure. So the redlining is, of course, discrimination by race or ethnicity, and I think could be national origin as well on a prohibited basis based on geography, where the people live. And so typically, the way the Justice Department has interpreted the Equal Credit Opportunity Act and the Fair Housing Act in their complaints, they have shown it to be a facts and circumstances situation. So they look at whether or not there is a difference, among other things, in the market share in minority communities versus majority communities. 
That's one analysis. There are other analyses as well. And they look to see whether or not there is a statistically significant difference in that market share. That's one framework. Or whether or not there's a statistically significant difference in the concentration with one group versus another in those geographies. And so with that analysis, and by the way, this is an analysis that can be done with Jess Humda data for mortgage loans. And you don't really need to look at loan qualifications because it could be done with just applications. It could be done with originations too, but you don't have to look at the credit score of the applicant, any of those things that don't really come into play. So in a sense, it's easier to determine. However, I can't speak for the Justice Department, but it appears from their allegations in the various cases that have been brought that they like to have a little more than just that. So they want to see something as well that shows really either intent, although it's not required, or negligence in the activities of the institution. So they'll look at the opening and closing of branches, whether the opening and closing of branches has been done in a disparate manner. They'll look at also complaints in the community. They'll look at maybe complaints by individuals or former employees. So those things kind of color the motivation, even though the motive is not required, but it colors it. And that combined with the statistics, those things without the statistics are not strong. And the statistics can somewhat stand on its own, but you really want to have, and you know, from a regulator's perspective, you really want to have some of that other stuff too, to show that there's a serious mindset problem here that needs to change. So that's on the red line. So what I would think a bigger issue for credit unions is that they have come to the game later than banks and mortgage companies from a scrutiny point of view. And even I think I read today that the fair lending examination process really only started about 22 years ago for the credit unions. And it's been around longer for the banks. So what I find in my experience with them on our consulting is that there's more to do with respect to getting started, finding the right personnel, designing a program. So I'll start with designing a program. So the design of a program begins with what I would call fair lending risk assessment. And that's where the credit union looks inward and asks itself a lot of questions about its operation. And so those questions really come from the interagency exam procedures. Some people call it FlexPro. They have different names for it. But the interagency exam procedures are where each banking agency, including NCUA, they have agreed on a set of parameters for compliance risk factors, for redlining risk factors, for underwriting risk factors, pricing risk factors, and marketing risk factors as they relate to fair lending. And so one can take those risk factors, turn them into questions, and actually we've done that in our software, as well as adding risk factors from our experience as consultants, and then ask the questions 
do we have loan types that have features that could have disparate outcomes? Ask yourself the question, do we have subprime lending? Ask ourselves the question, do we have disparities in underwriting outcomes? And so on and so forth. And you go through that process and you rate yourself low, medium, high on these things. And like I said, we do that in our software so that you get an assessment, basically, and you can sum all of that up. Another thing you might look at is whether you're dealing with third parties, dealing with dealers, brokers, third-party originators, that would be higher risk. Using an automated underwriting system, that in and itself isn't higher risk. I would say that in itself might be lower risk, but only if that system is generating fair outcomes. And so you will have to test the AUS for bias. The extent to which you are doing judgmental decision as well in underwriting, as well as pricing, whether you are allow pricing exceptions and under what circumstances you allow them, the tracking of those exceptions. The other thing is, do you have policies, plans, and procedures that could have a disparate impact? And that's always another one of those provocative topics, disparate impact. But that actually needs to be analyzed statistically, usually. And then lastly, I'll say mortgage or automobile or consumer loan servicing, particularly where the collateral is involved and whether you're going to have foreclosures and handling of REO. There have been some suits brought on the mortgage side for that, but credit unions, I think a significant risk to say do such tremendous automobile lending is their repossessions, whether or not that could be happening on a prohibited basis and complaints that might surface. Those are just a few of things. Well, yeah, there's a lot there. And one of the words we've both said quite a bit here today is statistics and statistical methods and statistical sampling. Can you think of some scenarios or maybe give some examples of whether or not when to use statistics and why, and then what kind of statistics are good to utilize? Okay, let me give you a thought process for that. So random pricing, underwriting, and marketing inconsistencies are okay. However, patterns of prohibitive basis disparities in pricing, underwriting, and marketing are not, okay? And they are especially not when the applicants are similarly situated, okay? So I said a few things. So I talked about three areas, mark pricing, underwriting, and marketing. And so those are kind of the three areas you really want to focus on. And when we talk about marketing, that's sort of that redlining thing. Okay. And I mentioned prohibited basis disparities. And so today I am only talking about those things that the prohibited basis disparities that you can get from either Humda data. And I don't know if we're going to have time to get to this, but, or proxies that for what would otherwise be in Humda data, if there was a Humda data collection for it. So you can use surnames and demographics to estimate the race or ethnicity or gender of a person. But I'll save that. So like I said, randomness is okay. But when it's not random, that's saying there is a pattern. And so statistical analysis tells us that the pattern of a difference, of a disparity is real. That is, economists say not different from zero, but that's not like how normal people talk. 
but it's a real difference. It's not a random difference. It's unlikely to happen by chance when it's statistically significant. And so when you're doing these analyses, if it's pricing, you may be measuring based on APR, and that would show your output in terms of basis points. And if you're doing approved deny, it would be based on odds ratios and the probability of denial. And when those differences show a race effect in the models, when you're controlled for qualifications, then that's when we have a problem. Now, one more thing I'd just like to say, the way we like to do it is like in the consulting, we like to do an analysis without controls first and then with controls. Without controls, we call that bivariate analysis. And so we would just be looking at whether or not, let's say, Hispanics and non-Hispanic whites and Hispanics, the difference in APR, say it might be 25 basis points, and if that's statistically significant. So we do a T-test. T-test would tell us, very simple thing, you can actually even do it in Excel, or you can do it in software, or you can do it in our software. But it would tell you whether or not there's a statistically significant difference. So that gives you a focal point. That tells you you ought to investigate further. But it doesn't tell you why, because there may be a justifiable reason for that difference. That the difference might be because one group on average had a higher LTV, or one group on average had a lower FICO score, or one group on average had a higher DTI, or all of the above. So all of those things taken together. And in order to do the kind of statistical analysis that would tell us the why, that is, explain why, we have to use regression analysis. And so you have to create a regression model. This particular kind of model that we're talking about for pricing for APR would be an ordinary least squares model, often referred to as OLS. And so we would run that model using APR as a dependent variable, and then we would work with the institution to find the things that they say, according to their policy, explain pricing outcomes. And hopefully we have data on those and we put that in the model. And then we see whether or not the model explains the disparity or whether we also put the prohibited basis in the model or whether the model, the disparity is explained by the race effect or the ethnicity effect or the age effect. And so that's kind of it in a nutshell. We do a different kind of model when we're talking about underwriting. It's usually a logistic regression model because we have a dichotomous dependent variable. But the idea and the concept is the same. This is a fascinating topic. We could sit here and talk for hours, I think, and go down all of these different paths. We might need to plan on doing a second podcast mm -hmm. at some juncture on some of these topics. Mm -hmm. I think there's one last question I want to ask before I let you kind of see if there's anything else you want to talk about. But so if someone's looking at, you know, pick a $750 million credit union or pick a $3 billion credit union, if someone is looking at wanting to do and comply and have good policies and procedures and serve their members well, what's the thought process that they should be going through and deciding whether or not they have the ability to do these things in-house or that they should seek 
professional help outside of their walls? That's a very good question. And I run into it all the time on our consulting practice because this is a unique area. And like I said before, I never thought I would be blending law and statistics, scientific evidence. I never thought I'd be doing that. And technology, you know, never thought. So software, you know, I don't want to be self-serving here, but software helps dumb down the process. That's probably not a nice way to say it, but it does make the process easier because software can just give you the answers and it can guide your approach. It basically tells you what to do. And so you want to consider maybe a tool, but you can do the same thing with talent. But the problem is talent is hard to find and keep interested. So you can find somebody at any university, particularly in the social science realm, that can do this kind of stuff. But if this is all they did, I think you would have a hard time retaining them because it would be interesting for a couple of years, but uh, maybe not forever. So the ideal candidate is to find someone that has a background that you could groom, that computer literate, and that could use the tools that are out there. That's actually probably the lowest cost way to do it as well. Sure. So that would be advice that I would give. And I would say, assess your abilities, honestly. If you don't have that person internally, one of the things you could do is use a consultant, and we're not the only ones that are out there, but use a consultant to model the whole process for you. And that's what we do more frequently. People have the software, but they want to see how do we use it so that they can design their fair lending program around it, and they know what reports to run. And essentially, they then replicate what we would be delivering. And so I think those are some shortcuts, basically, to getting to the place you want to get to fastest. That's a great answer. And as you were explaining that, the utilizing of software and how challenging it could be and how intense this process could be, a Confucius quote popped into my head that I'm going to state here before we wrap up. But Confucius said, it's a simple task to make things complex and a complex task to make them simple. Ah. Uh -huh. And seeing your software on the screen where it's taking the complex task of all this data and all the data that's out there, Humda, for other institutions and looking at a particular city and seeing how your landscape looks and looking at that, taking that data, all the complexity that went into building all of the tools that get it to that screen that shows it in a simple way that I could understand as a non fair lending expert. I was fascinated by it, which is what led me to reach out to chat with you today. And before we wrap up, Mike, if there's anything else that you'd like to say, other than how does somebody get in touch with you, any last thoughts here before we wrap up today's show? Yeah. One last thought is that a lot of our consulting that we get, they are like emergency calls. They are like, oh, oh the exam is coming and it's like two months away, three months away, and we haven't done what we said we were going to do after the last exam, or we haven't done anything, or the person who was doing it left or retired. And so when you're in those emergency type situations, we've organized our practice around being able to help people in that situation. So we're certainly willing to even talk to people without free consultation if 
people find themselves in a difficult situation just to see whether or not there's a good fit. I mean, we're not a good fit for everybody, but we're certainly willing to talk and have a conversation. And we're not stingy about giving information and being helpful. And you can reach me at my email, M, my last name, Talia Farrell, T-A-L-I-E-F-E-R-O at compliancetech.com. Our website is compliancetech.com, of course. And I'll even give my telephone number, 703-801-1285. So thank you for having me today, Mark. Fantastic, Mike. I really enjoyed this. I think my listeners mm-hmm. are going to as well. And that summary at the end I, is perfect. And again, thank you for your time. With Flying Colors. And listeners, thank you for your time today. This is Mark Treichel signing off with Flying Colors. Thank you for joining us on this episode of With Flying Colors. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to hear future episodes where subject matter experts of all varieties will provide tips on how to achieve success with NCUA. If you would like to learn more about how we assist credit unions, check out our services at marktreichel.com. 